And so we come together again for another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson, stepping up to Canto 24 of Dante's Paradiso, continuing on this eighth sphere, the home of the fixed stars, the final stop before the actual divine presence itself. The canto opens with someone speaking. It takes ten lines until we learn that this is Beatrice speaking, addressing that whole company of heaven, the church triumphant, who have remained behind with Dante and Beatrice when Christ and Mary left to go back up to the ninth sphere. All these souls invited to the great banquet feast of the Blessed Lamb. Beatrice formally introduces Dante to them as a living soul who, through God's grace, has been invited to taste the crumbs that fall off the table of their feast. She asks them to attend to Dante's great desires and to satisfy his thirst with drops from the fountain they drink from, to satisfy his thirst at the deepest part of his mind. The response, as so often in heaven, is to rejoice through movement, a circling dance, many different circles spinning at different speeds, like, Dante says, like clockwork, where we see many different wheels moving around at different speeds, some spinning very fast, some almost seeming not to be moving at all, and all working together towards one effect, more variety in unity. And as at other times, Dante focuses on the brightest of the flames, who is now approaching him, or, or rather approaching Beatrice, probably as a response to what she has just said, circling her three times in joy, and singing so sublimely that Dante simply cannot find a way to describe it. His pen skips it, he doesn't write it out. He's overcome with the sense that we living beings simply do not have the imagination or the language equal to the joy expressed here. But if Dante cannot reproduce the song, he can at least tell us what this soul says to Beatrice now, his Santa Suora, his holy sister. It is the strength of her love that has called him from the circle he was dancing in. Beatrice then replies, first identifying this soul, obliquely as usual. He's the man with whom Jesus left the keys, that is, St. Peter, the rock on which Christ builds his church, the man who became the first pope, whose keys opened the gates of heaven to those worthy of entering. Dante had focused on Peter at the end of the last canto, and now we will have his encounter with the man. Beatrice asks Peter to examine Dante on the subject of faith that faith that enabled Peter, at least for a short few minutes, to walk on water. Of course you already know, she says, how true his love and his faith and hope are, since you know all things through God. But since faith is so important here in heaven, it would be good for him to speak out about his faith and to glorify it. So there's Dante, like an undergraduate being shown to the room in which he'll take his final oral exam, standing there silent, while the examiner gets ready to ask the first question, preparing himself with answers to possible questions. And then the exam begins. It's all very formal, as Peter issues his first question, declare a good Christian, and make it clear, what is faith? Dante looks up at the light that is Peter, and then, as usual, over to Beatrice to check if it's okay to proceed. She indicates that, yes, he now should speak out what springs out of his deepest being, and so he does. 
But first there's a kind of invocation or prayer to that grace that allows him to speak out, asking to be given the ability clearly to set out his thoughts, all this emphasis on his answers not being something he is to take credit for, but something that is already within him, that he is opening up to allow to become manifested in words. And then the answer, quoting the words, he says, of Peter's brother in Christ, St. Paul, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. This definition, Dante says, is the quiddity of faith, that is, the thing that distinguishes it from every other quality. Peter picks up on this definition and asks Dante to explain why faith is a substance and why it provides evidence. I'll try to paraphrase the argument here. Faith is the quality found in those things that people hope for, which implies that it is something that is not present right now, or at least not present to our senses. We believe that thing exists, even though we can't see it, and that's why we can hope for it. There's no point hoping for something you don't think exists. I can't, for instance, hope to meet Batman, because he does not exist. I have no faith in his existence. It is faith that provides the evidence that something exists when I have no actual experience of the thing itself. Or to put it a little differently, having faith in something is the evidence, or the argument, for the existence of that thing, even if we can't see it, even if it is beyond our sense perception. So, if my neighbor tells me about her father, but I have never met the man, then the only way I can know of his existence is my faith in her words about him. My faith is evidence that he does exist, unless I'm wrong in my faith, which is why it becomes important to stay alert to the need to adjust our faith when necessary. Is my neighbor trustworthy? This is the issue involved in Peter's later questions about the foundations of Dante's faith. Dante has now, in the poem, actually seen the life in the heavens, so this is no longer a matter of faith, but of experience or fact. For those of us still alive on earth, however, this heavenly life is unseen, so all we have to go on is our faith. And having that faith, we can hold on to the hope that we can eventually come to experience it. Peter gives Dante full marks for this answer. If everyone on earth could understand this as well as you do, that would be an end to empty philosophical discussions. Then Peter shifts to a metaphor. You have analyzed this coin's metallic composition and weight, but do you actually have that coin in your pocket? Good question, though of course he, he already knows the answer. Dante comes back with a terse and confident reply. Yes, I have that coin, so well polished and round that I know it's not counterfeit. Peter's next question. That faith you say you have, where did it come from? How did you get possession of it? Dante's answer is that he gained his faith through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, operating through the Old and New Parchments, that is, the Old and New Testaments. This has offered him so much proof that nothing else is needed. And then the interesting question, what convinces you that these testaments really represent the Word of God? It was the miracles, Dante says, that convinced him, those events never made by nature itself. That's good, but Peter challenges this. Well, what convinces you, though, that these miracles really happened? 
You say you believe the scriptures because of the miracles, but first you have to show why you believe the miracles are true. Otherwise, you're arguing in circles. The greatest miracle, Dante replies, is the conversion of the world, at least the major part of the world that Dante knew in this time. The conversion of the world to Christianity without miracles. I mean, there was Peter, for instance, poor and hungry, able to plant the seeds that grew into the vine of the church without some miraculous spectacle like a divine voice calling down to a whole population that they must convert. I've added this example. It's not in Dante. There can be no natural explanation for that enormous change in people's faith. That was the miracle. That vine springing up from such humble beginnings is the proof that miracles can happen. But, Dante adds, returning to the theme of the corrupt church, that vine of the church, alas, has now turned into a thorny bush. And that's the end of this part of Dante's exam. All the souls around, the whole host of saved souls who had been witnessing the oral exam, join in a te deum. We praise thee, O God, the great hymn of praise to God, the inspiration for Dante's answers, and also the one responsible for that supreme miracle. Peter recognizes that Dante's words come from divine grace, and thus, of course, he approves of them. It gives them a passing mark. But there's another question for him to deal with. What exactly do you believe, and how did you come by this belief? I like the way Dante proceeds here. He does not directly answer the question at first, but, as many others have done to him earlier on, he restates the question. <laughs> Students know this is a good way to play for time before coming to the answer, but I don't think that's what Dante's up to. He is just following the courteous pattern of showing that he understands what is being asked of him. Dante then professes his faith in what begins as the words of the official creed, I believe in one God. But then he goes on to add a bit of Aristotelian language. God as the unmoved mover, the one who originates with love that generates desire, all the movement in the whole universe. I have acquired this belief both from observation of the physical world and from philosophical reasoning, and also from the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. And I believe, he says, continuing along the lines of the creed, in the Trinity, three persons in one God, both three and one, and adds a kind of grammatical confirmation. We can use both the plural are and the singular is when speaking of the Trinity. But mostly, Dante concludes, the truth about God is confirmed by the gospel, that spark that has grown into a flame within him. Peter is overjoyed to hear all this, and, if this were an ordinary scene on earth, he would have thrown his arms around Dante at this point. But of course he can't. He, he has no arms or any human shape after all. So he does the thing these souls do best. He circles three times around Dante, thus expressing his great delight. And with this the canto ends. The canto begins with Beatrice formally presenting Dante to the assembled hosts, and St. Peter coming over and circling her in delight three times. The canto ends, as we've just seen, with his performing the same triple circling around Dante. This in itself shows us the movement of the canto, Dante at the end being treated the same as Beatrice at the beginning. His status, we might say, has risen that high. 
and in the middle of the canto we get the disputatio, the examination of the candidate Dante by the examiner St. Peter, which leads from that opening moment to the closing moment. We have watched as Dante has been learning all along at each stage of his journey. That learning has to come to an end, and we're coming into that end now. Here is part one of the final exam. Beatrice takes on the role of the tutor or the sponsor, presenting her pupil as a candidate to the examination board, or a candidate for the catechism. This may be a significant shift, as she prepares to relinquish the role she has been playing throughout the poem so far. When we look at the pattern of this moment, we might notice that whereas throughout the Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso, Dante has been the one with a constant stream of questions, desiring answers from the people he encounters. But now someone else is asking the questions, and Dante is the one giving the answers. Let's be aware of this shift. St. Peter, as I've said, takes on the role of the chief examiner, appropriate for the one who holds the keys to heaven. These keys connect to someone else, that angel we met at the gate of purgatory, with his two keys. And that reminds us that Peter is also here taking on the role of another guardian at the gate, the mythic figure at the threshold of a new experience, who challenges the newcomer to see if that person is fit and prepared to undergo this new experience. This, this is a richer mythic image than the popular one today of the bearded St. Peter at the Pearly Gates, with an open ledger checking to see if your name is on his list of members of the club. There's an odd feature to this exam. Here is the examiner, Peter, and then the others present, perhaps as the rest of the examination board, consisting of all the souls in the history of the world who have been saved and risen into heaven. This is not just an examination, we realize. It's a performance, and a performance to quite a daunting audience. And here's what's odd about it. The examiner and all the others given their heavenly knowledge, already know everything in Dante's mind. They know he knows the answers. So what's the point? Well, we might remember that Caccia Guida had said that although he knows what Dante's question is, it's a good idea for Dante to ask it out loud, if only as a way to start the exchange. Let's apply that here. Dante is not answering these questions to show that he knows the answers. He's not trying to pass an exam with a good grade. He is not expressing his beliefs, he is professing them. He is publicly declaring them and owning them. This examination then takes the form of an initiation rite, a formal ceremony before Dante can join the community and enter up into that most sacred ninth sphere. Remember, you can only become what you can imagine becoming, Dante is now showing that he can imagine the heavenly life, and soon he will become a member of it. We may also notice that Dante has no hesitation in his answers, except in a sense that initial hesitation to open himself to the grace coming through him, and his checking in with Beatrice to see if it's okay to start answering. When he speaks, he is sure of himself, since, after all, it's not really Dante himself speaking from his ego, trying to prove how well he's learned his lessons, but it's the inspiration of grace that is putting the words into his mouth. Now let's spend a few minutes looking at what that examination was all about. 
the theological virtue of faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Dante says, quoting from the opening of chapter 11 of the Epistle to the Hebrews. Dante says he's quoting St. Paul, though actually most scholars today doubt that Paul wrote the Epistle to the Hebrews. Is that a stumbling block to our reading of this canto? This definition, Dante says, is the quiddity of faith, that is, the thing that distinguishes it from every other quality. I said in an earlier episode that the quiddity of something, as opposed to just giving the name of the thing, is always something we can respond to. So how do we respond to this? One way to respond is dramatized in the canto by the back-and-forth exchanges between Dante and Peter, not just taking the definition on face value, but delving into its meanings and into Dante's relationship with it. We can also see our own response to this definition by translating this formal definition into what we call an operational definition, that is, by seeing how it plays out in everyday life. What are you doing when you have faith? How does Dante's orthodox sense of faith work for us? How do we actually live it? Here's what I suggest. Let's go back to what we were saying last time about Middlemarch. Middlemarch can be, for us, what Dante says the scriptures were for him. It can be a vehicle for the Holy Spirit to speak to us. And so, as we said, one of the things that we hear as we read Middlemarch is that everyone experiences rich, complex inner lives. And also, to make matters more complicated, we all have limited vision and usually cannot see these inner lives of others, but we should try to, as best we can. So if we say that this is what the Holy Spirit is telling us through George Eliot's novel, then we can hold on to this in faith. I say faith because we cannot perceive these inner lives with our senses. We can get glimpses of them in those people we are closest to, but it's simply an act of faith to consider that the man, for instance, who drops off the delivery at our front door also perhaps is worried about the last thing his wife said to him as he left home this morning, or is bothered by that pain in his hip that seems to get worse as the day goes on and might mean he'll have to give up this job sometime soon. Or he might be proud because he thinks his smart delivery cap makes him look sexy and he's fantasizing about some beautiful woman answering the door in a thin negligee. <laughs> With our Middlemarch faith, we can believe that some such inner life is going on, even in someone we encounter for only a few seconds. The point about this faith, as we're told, is that it is the substance of things hoped for. In other words, our faith is tied in with our hope. We'll focus on hope itself in the next canto, but let's just finish our operational definition, our example of Middlemarch, with the observation that just having faith in other people's inner lives is not an end in itself. That faith becomes something we hope to see. So instead of just taking that delivery man for granted or yelling at him for being five minutes late, I should hope or expect that there's more going on in his life than just doing this one job for me, and I should treat him with consideration, even just a cheerful thanks to give a little lift to his day. That act of kindness takes us to the third theological virtue, charity, or love, 
but this is for a later canto. The point is that without that initial faith derived from Middlemarch, that others are as alive inside as I myself am, without that faith I would never be able to hope to make any kind of real human connection with another person, even as small a connection as calling out thanks as the delivery man hurries back to the van. But I do have that faith, and I do hope that there's more to everyone else I meet, and I do, therefore, do unto others as I would have them do unto me, because we are all bruised and sensitive and confused and worthy, as George Eliot knew so well. Of course, the kind of faith and hope Dante and St. Peter are talking about in Canto 24 is much deeper than just being kind to the delivery man. It is the faith, to put it simplistically, that behind everything in the world there moves a divine loving energy arousing our desires and wishing to satisfy those desires. Having faith in this, we hope to experience this divine life after death in Dante's Christian myth here, or, as we have discussed throughout, even in everyday life, in those minutes, or maybe just seconds, when we can transcend our self-contained ego desires. Treating the delivery man with consideration is the same in kind as, though less in degree than, rising up to the divine vision in the Empyrean. It's all part of the heavenly dance, in earth as in heaven. Before we go, we should give a thought to the discussion of miracles towards the end of the canto. Dante cites the supreme miracle that, with such meager and unprofessional beginnings, nevertheless, the church grew and was able to draw so many people to the gospel message. Surely that's a miracle. How else do we explain such an inexplicable growth? Yes, but we know that people today are going to dismiss this view of the Church and offer an alternative explanation. They bypass any consideration of miraculous conversions and explain the growth of the Church in terms of material or cultural determinism, perhaps showing how economic and social conditions made the claims of the Gospel the only consolation for the lowest members of the society and they can easily show the way whole nations converted to Christianity not through a miracle, but through some pope or king's move in a larger political power game. These explanations seem to work. They suit the modern, secular temperament, though they may also reveal how narrow is that modern, secular temperament in its confinement within material cause and effect. Of course, this is not something I can resolve, or attempt to resolve here. But I can say that if we are going to continue reading Dante, and not throw the book away at this point, we have to take his views here seriously, and entertain the idea that miracles are possible, that divine intervention can reshape our lives. A willing suspension of disbelief? Yes, if it comes to that. We will diminish our reading of Dante if we simply dismiss his ideas because we disagree. That's not a rewarding way to read. It abolishes the exchange that is what it's all about. So much for that. A second part of the examination takes place in the next canto. We'll meet up there.